Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Another mass shooting in a U.S. school left 21 dead, including 17 children. Last week, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos shocked the world when he opened fire in an elementary school in the city of Uvalde, Texas, and live-streamed his atrocities on social media. He was killed by police on the spot. So far this year, over 20 mass shootings have been recorded in schools, and a total of 7,700 people have died from gun violence in the United States. Yet. There is no sign the trend is bucking. How deep does the root cause go? How on earth can the issue be remedied? I'm pleased to be joined from London by visiting Professor Martin Jakes to Tsinghua University. He was a former senior fellow with uh, Cambridge University. I'm pleased to be joined from Hong Kong by Edward Lehman, Managing Director of Lehman, Lee and Shu LLP, a law firm. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So let's take a look at the past few years of trends um, in the shooting in the United States. We know uh, so far this year, 7,700 people have already died in the year 2021. 45,000 people died from gun violence. 2020, in the year 2020, 43,000. Uh, the year before that, were almost 40,000 as well. And these are according to the data from Gun Violence Archive. As to school shootings, we have this uh, uh, network called uh, Education Week, which tracks school shooting incidents in the United States. And re they recorded 24 in the year 2018, 24 school shootings in the year 2019. For the year 2020, it's slightly less, only about 10. But then in the year 2021, there was a total of 34 shootings in U.S. schools. So, uh, Edward, let me go to you. Uh, how do you look at this persistent trend? It's not necessarily going up, not necessarily going going worse, but the number has just been so extraordinarily high. 40,000 people uh, on average a year dying from gun violence in the United States. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tragedy uh, at, a, at a huge scale. I mean, when you look at, I think I was looking recently when we were looking up to, to research this, that I think the number one cause of, of children's death is is apparently school is shooting. I mean, so that that, that has moved up because that's such a, a demographic where there isn't a lot of death. So this is remarkable um, and it, it's shocking and it's American exceptionalism in, in what we don't want to be exceptional in, which is, uh, which is school shootings. I mean, I was looking at uh, just mass shootings. There's been one, I think, approximately for every day of this year, uh, somewhere like that. Before this this Texas shooting, there was one in Buffalo. There was a, one out in, in California at a church. So, I mean, th this is a broad range of things, not just school shootings, but also mass shootings uh, that are occurring in the United States. And when you look at the reactions, for instance, a day after the shooting, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz was at a prayer vigil in the city. And when asked why a tragedy of this scale happened in the state, he said, this is the freest, most prosperous and safest country on earth. Really, um, Martin, let me go to, can this, can America brag itself about being the safest, safest place on earth? Um, and yet it seems for people like Ted Cruz, it's nothing is going to change his his belief in this. Well, it's difficult listening to the statistics to believe that America is a very is a safe country. It seems to me that uh, 
depending partly on where where you live uh, and uh, uh, who you are, uh, this is a very unsafe country in lots of respects, uh, tragically so. Um, and I can't really see any resolution to this problem. I mean, the, the, the reasons for uh, uh, possession of guns in the United States is extremely old. I mean, it really goes back, uh, ultimately, I think, to the way in which the United States was originally uh, created. Uh, and in the re recent past, probably uh, dating back to the 1960s and desegregation, uh, then increasingly for Republicans, uh, bearing arms became a major political and legal question. Uh, and so the situation now, I think, is a kind of logjam where, you know, this is in, in a way one of the ultimate polarization issues where the Republicans like uh, Ted Cruz or Trump and so on believe that, you know, guns are uh, the means to safety. You know, there, there's not a bad gun. There's, a, there's, a, there's either a bad man or a good, a good man holding a gun. And, and that's the way they look at it. So therefore, Trump's response to this situation has been to say, you know, guns are the, me uh, uh, the means to stay safe. They are a guarantee of security, which is the opposite, by the way, not uh, to the experience in other countries. I mean, my own country's had mass shootings from time to time, very rare, but we've had them. And New Zealand and Australia and Canada and Norway have had these kind of shootings, but they've taken absolutely the opposite direction in response they've, they've, they've restricted they've restricted gun control uh, gun use yeah it seems that in the minds of uh, some people in the united states the answer to the gun problem is more guns out there and yet being a mother um, i'm of course extremely saddened to see the faces of the children who were killed in this um, absolutely unnecessary rampage but yet if you look at the killer he is just turned he just turned 18 year literally he was still a child too how could a child be so cold-blooded against other children, against his own grandma. I mean, we have, we looked into some statistics, for instance, uh, according to the American Psychiatric Association, about three to 5% of Americans are sociopaths, psychopaths. Is that the problem? I mean, um, Edward, let me go to you first. And that another issue I, I pay attention is 30% of American families are single parent family, the highest in the world, one of the highest in the world. And Ramos, that child who killed the other people, seems also to come from a family where the mother and the father at least don't live together. So exactly what are the issues here? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, the mental health was the issue that was cited by Governor Greg Abbott uh, after a press conference after this had all occurred. If you look at it statistically, all countries have mental health issues. I mean, so you look at Japan, you look at Norway, you look you look at, uh, at England all these other places, what's the variable? So the number's probably roughly the same with three to 5% in that range, I would imagine. Okay, so what's the, what is the variable? What is the issue that's different? Is that, uh, is the, is the prolific, prolific um, amount of guns within the United States? And so, um, I mean, America makes up only about 4% of the world's population, but it owns about 46% of the entire global stock of 857 million civilian firearms. So there are more, uh, many more guns in the United States than there are human beings in the United States. And so 
the ease with which someone can purchase this, if you look at this, this fellow, this perpetrator, uh, Ramos, like you said, I mean, he lived with his grandmother. He, he first shot his grandmother in, in the head. Uh, she somehow had managed to survive to raise the alarm. And, uh, but still there was not, uh, there was not a, a moment in which they could have gotten together and stopped this from happening. So, um, you know, uh, American civilians um, nearly, they have owned nearly 100 times more firearms as the U.S. military and nearly 400 times as many as law enforcement. So these are just average citizens. And every single time that there's a spike like this where there are shootings, there's more guns that are purchased. So the American gun lobby, and by the way, I mean, Ted Cruz, which uh, we, we were just talking about a moment ago, he this weekend is at the NRA conference, uh, you know, talking to the National Rifle Association about the protection of, of gun, um, the, the ability to sell and own guns. So um, the, the, the biggest question really is, um, whichever way, you know, more guns, less guns, you have to be able to take action to solve the problem. And it seems that the United States is just unable to come to any consensus to do something meaningful. Um, Martin, what exactly is the problem? How big is the problem? Is the system that's not functioning? I mean, you have democracy in the United States, as they claim. You have the press that's free, independent, holding public power accountable. You have the president who's calling for action. It's very ironic because he is the president, but he's calling for action. I mean, action by whom? Exactly what is the problem? How deep does it go? Well, the problem is obviously very deep. I mean, I agree with what Edward said. I don't think that it's the primary problem here is mental health. Yeah, there's a serious mental health problem in the, uh, the United States. But, you know, you can say the same of quite a lot of countries, including my own. And there's the growing recognition of the importance of this. The problem in the United States is that it, a young kid who's feeling angry, who's feeling shut out of society, who's had a row, can reach for a gun and shoot. I mean, this is the problem because guns are, you know, ten a penny, as we would say in English. Uh, in the United States. They are very, very accessible. For an 18-year-old, they can easily go and buy a gun. They, not just a gun, they can go and buy a semi-automatic gun and as an assault weapon, which will shoot, you know, lots of people, as we see in these schools. You know, 20 is quite a regular kind of figure in these shootings. So uh, now the problem is uh, that uh, America is divided on this question. Uh, divided between those who believe in the importance of the gun and the, the, the right to bear arms and the Second Amendment and another section of society, maybe roughly half, who believe the opposite. So there is a, there is a, 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 a paralysis and, uh, and I don't see any solution to this in the near future. I mean, maybe it'll go on for a long, long time, this situation. It could even get worse. I mean, uh, uh, if you have uh, the return of something like the Trump presidency, then he'll obviously, uh, they'll, they'll obviously encourage uh, gun ownership. But the problem also is historical. And I don't think we should in any way underestimate this, that America grew up uh, by the use of arms. I mean, how did, how, how, how were the Native Americans defeated? By the gun. 
Yeah, so basically when there is a problem, Martin, let me stay with you, when there is a problem that's so dire that needs to be addressed, the American political system, the way it is now, is unable to carry out any fundamental reform that's necessary. I mean, as old this is the problem is, as big the problem is, the way it is now, the political system it is now, it's unable to just address this issue. Yeah, well, of course, this is not just limited to the question of gun gun control. I mean, of course, a, a, a range of issues. The only issue in America which unites Americans at the moment is the attitude towards China. But otherwise, uh, Americans are absolutely divided on most issues. I mean, look what happened to uh, Biden's economic uh, program. It's not got anywhere. Uh, nothing's happened. No, nothing will happen. You know. So the, the, pro the problem is very, very deep in American society, which is the country is profoundly divided. Edward, um, how long is it going to take till this uh, issue can really be addressed and start to see some kind of resolution? Well, the, the, again, Ted Cruz uh, received four hundred forty-two thousand dollars from the uh, from the National Rifle Association. They're a strong gun lobby. There has been reform. It was nineteen ninety-four to two thousand four against AR fifteen uh, type rifles. Didn't work out for them. Uh, it, that lapsed in two thousand four. Wasn't really a, a reduction in shootings at that point in time. So I think the future lies with what what Americans can do at the, at the ballot box to be able to change their uh, elected officials in order to, to change the laws and policies and regulations to get around the Second Amendment and give them back to the state's rights, which uh, which is what they've done with abortion. But those same people who have done it with abortion or want to do it with abortion won't do it for gun rights because of the Second Amendment. So we're in this kind of catch 22 uh, cycle that I'm not sure we're going to get out in the near future. So it doesn't bode well for that. Uh, part of the American society. Very tricky issue. Many thanks to my guests, uh, Martin Jakes joining us from London and uh, Edward Lehman joining us from Hong Kong. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back right after this. Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. The Ukraine crisis marks its 100th day Friday this week. According to Russian Prime Minister, Russia is the target of global sanctions with a number exceeding 6,000. But the opinions of Russia's economy seem to be polarized. Many are saying Russia won't withstand such an economic solvent, yet some others are pointing out that Russia's economy is back on its feet. So what is the true picture of Russia's economic state? How resilient is it? And how is Russia finding its way out of the so-called economic isolation? I'm pleased to be joined from Moscow by Dr. Yaroslav Lisovolik, Program Director with the Valdai Discussion Club, an international framework for global leading experts. He's also a member of Russia's International Affairs Council. And I'm pleased to be joined from Singapore by Dr. Tang Ki Wee, the founder and principal economist of the consultancy firm Waveney Economics. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. So let me go to uh, Dr. Lisovolik first. 
first, we would like to find out your opinion about exactly what's the current state of the Russian economy. Early in May, the White House says that Russia's special military operation is projected to wipe out the last 15 years of economic gains in Russia. What is your assessment of the state of Russia's economy and how resilient or how robust is it at this moment? Well, I well, think, I think if, you, if you look at the main macroeconomic indicators now, it's pretty much a mixed bag. Uh, on the one hand, uh, some of the macroeconomic indicators show stability. Uh, like, for example, if you look at the unemployment rate, it's uh, pretty low at just above uh, 4%, one of the lowest uh, levels that we've seen in the past years. Um, also, uh, if you look at such indicators as fiscal balance, trade balance, Russia has twin surpluses. So Russia has a fiscal surplus um, of nearly 1% of GDP, and in terms of its trade balance, exports significantly exceed imports, and uh, in the course of this year, the trade surplus is projected to exceed 10% of GDP. On the other hand, you do have worrisome developments with regard to some of the other indicators, like, for example, inflation is in the double digits. Uh, it is uh, projected to be at around 15% or even more, and this is several times higher than uh, what we had uh, in the preceding year. And in terms of GDP dynamics, uh, we will have a GDP decline. Um, the opinion differs on the exact scale, but possibly between 5 to 6% or even more. And this is, again, something that is one of the highest declines that we've seen in, in recent years, even compared to the pandemic period. Dr. Ten, what is your gauge of uh, the kind of uh, health or state of the Russian economy at this moment? Do you also see the mixed bag scenario? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, but uh, I mean, the, if I just depend on economic data, to me, they are not reliable because, like uh, Dr. Lisovili was saying, the inflation figures, the latest I have is for March. And, you know, the war, the conflict only started around February onwards. So the, the latest GDP figures I have are actually for last year. So I cannot, from the data, maybe he has more up-to-date figures. Uh, that'll be good if you share, but I, I can't tell. But what I use is actually two things, which is the ruble exchange rate. It used to be 80 before the crisis. It shot up to or weakened to 140 over. Now it's back to 64 as of last Friday. So to me, it's good because, you know, when we have weak currency, it actually devastates the economy. So things to me looking good. Secondly, is the interest rates. Interest rates used to be 10%, it went up to 20%, and now it's back to 11%. So again, high interest rates is actually bad for the economy. So if the interest rates are just back to 11%, which is only 1% above before the crisis, to me, it seems that the Russian economy is doing well. And besides this, there are two other things. Number one, Russia is having a wheat harvest from what Putin announced uh, a few days ago. And that's very good. It can bring in more money for the Russian economy. And secondly, they have announced that they are giving a 10% increase to all pensioners. To me, I mean, that's wonderful. I mean, Russia must have some money before they decide to give the rest, uh, pensioners and those minimum wages. So to me, it seems looks good. The figures are looking good.
So despite the unknown figures to you now, it seems that there are at least some signs of uh, uh, relative uh, healthiness of the Russian economy. Let, let's break it down a little bit. Let's look at the GDP. For instance, the International Monetary Fund projects that Russia's GDP will be down by 8.5% in the year 2020. But re some reports are saying actually Q1 economy has expanded by 3.5%. That's slightly lower than Russia's expectation, but of course much higher than what people would of, uh, what people would expect uh, given the kind of sanctions that strike at the beginning of March, end of February. Um, Dr. Lisovolik, what is your gauge of the kind of uh, actual GDP growth that we might see coming out of uh, the, the first quarter? Well, I, I uh, would confirm the figures that you've cited that uh, in the first quarter, indeed, the official figures are at around three and a half percent. Uh, increase year on year. But if you look at the monthly breakdown, you do see a deceleration whereby in January, uh, the growth in GDP was above 5%. And uh, in March, uh, we had year on year increase of around, I think, 1.8%. So there's clearly a decelerating trend. And the assessments, the consensus in Russia right now, if you look at the estimates of um, uh, the economists uh, uh, are at around 8 to 9% uh, GDP decline for this year, but it seems like more, more recently these estimates are improving somewhat. And most recently, I think the aid uh, uh, to the president, the economic aid to the president, Maxim Areshkin, uh, cited his estimate of a decline of around 5% for Russia's GDP for this year. A lot of experts are pointing to the rising uh, fuel, fossil fuel prices that uh, has actually given Russia a lot of uh, imp, uh, revenue at this uh, critical moment. So, Dr. Tan, how do you look at the importance of the rising crude oil prices and how sustainable is that going to be given that the, the war is prolonging into the third month? And uh, do you think that the, the strength of the ruble and the revenue will keep coming to show up the the rest of the year for the Russian economy? Oh, yes, I think I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, the prices, well, before crisis was $80, now it's about 100, close to 120. So that's additional income for the Russian economy. Going forward, I think, uh, well, this is summer, and all, globally all supplies have been maxed. You know? So I think uh, it's going to be good for uh, the Russian economy. And just that I suspect the Russian economy will soon uh, in, in impose this uh, uh, oil for rubles system, payment system and that would actually give another boost to oil prices and the Russian uh, revenue. It's been almost three months since the SWIFT network has uh, blocked seven Russian banks and more uh, financial restrictions are poised to be slapped on Russia. What kind of uh, pressure is that, uh, Dr. Lisovolik, on the Russian financial system, given uh, there is discussion of uh, more uh, action from Western countries on Russia, that the Russian economy is withstand is withstanding the pressure from the outside and the kind of isolation has actually not brought Russia to its feet? Well, uh, Russia has been uh, devising its own uh, measures to try to compensate for some uh, of these possible measures, some of these possible restrictions, including the development of its own uh, payment system. Uh, 
there are measures that are being launched with partners uh, with BRICS countries to devise uh, payment systems, uh, common payment systems that would allow to bypass uh, the restrictions coming from uh, the Western economies. And of course, another factor that uh, is being used uh, by Russia is capital controls. So uh, previously, uh, Russia, Russia's uh, capital account was open. Um, and uh, with the onset of this crisis, Russia has imposed capital controls. And this was one of the main measures through which Russia managed to maintain exchange rate stability and relative stability in the financial system. What do you see will be the coming months for the Russian economy? Will there be stronger headwinds as the aim of all of these sanctions slapped on Russia is to bring Russia down to its feet, to, to make it unsustainable to continue to wage this war now that Russia seems to be doing okay, at least for the moment, Dr. Lisovolik? I think uh, in the coming months, uh, we may see relative stabilization after the initial shock. Obviously, uh, the initial shock was quite significant. Now, uh, with the system starting to adapt to this shock, with the reserves that have been accumulated, they're being put to use. Uh, we do see some signs of stabilization in uh, the most important segments of the macroeconomy. I think we will see some stabilization. But in the longer term, of course, the key question is how long this crisis will last. And then it's up to this factor to decide whether the reserves that have been accumulated by Russia in the run-up to this crisis will be sufficient. Dr. Ten, how do you look at the sustainability of the current state of things for the Russian economy? And given that the West, uh, led by the United States, has not achieved its aim of crippling the Russian economy, what do you think is going to happen to the, to, in terms of the international environment for the Russian economy? Well, the, the, the US-led Western economies tried to impose its uh, oil embargo on Russia. It has failed. You know? I think actually going forward, I'm more optimistic for the Russian economy than for the EU economies. Inflation is hitting them and uh, prices have gone up, uh, petrol, food, everything. And I think in the, when it comes to autumn, winter, they are, people are going to start complaining. And it is actually, I, I'm quite pessimistic for Europe because they have no reverse gear. They've done everything to hit Russia and hasn't been effect effective. Right now, as winter comes, if wheat prices go up, oil prices go up, I fear that we could see a repeat of maybe Arab Spring in Europe. People are angry when people don't have food. Many thanks to my two guests, uh, Dr. Yavoslav Lisovolik from the Voldai Discussion Group and Dr. Ten Kiwi, founder and chief principal economist of the consultancy firm Waveney Economics. And with that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point.